to put it on our website, which, you know, if you ever miss something, you can go listen to it. It's available. Last week I didn't, this week I want to make sure I didn't forget. Okay. Um, James chapter three, though, we're going to look at the same passages, same passage in some respects. Last week, we talked about it from the standpoint of the work that God was doing in us, that we participate with God through that sanctification, he being the, the, the rider of the horse, the one putting the bridle, the bit into the mouth, the one that is steering the ship. And so we look at it from that perspective. And this morning, we're going to focus really on, on the other side of that, our response in participation in our sanctification. Um, we, we made a couple of points, uh, and, and first off, that uh, this is an example. The, the tongue and our speech and all that represents is an example that there are many other areas in our life that we would participate with the Lord in our sanctification, in that conforming to the image of Christ. Secondly, and we are going to hammer this today. We're going to hear it so many times today because it, it is just inherent in the text. This is a heart issue. Our tongue is a heart issue. So we're going to, we're, you're going to be tired of hearing that. It's going to be, that's the dead horse for the day. We're going to, we're going to fully beat that horse. <laughs> okay. But, it, but it's there. And, and it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's our tongue. It doesn't matter if it's uh, other things within our life that the Lord is trying to conform into the image of Christ. It's a heart issue. That's just the outward. Whatever that thing is, is the outward manifestation of what is inside. And that's why I bring that up. That's why I reiterate that over and over and over, because God's in, in, interested in our heart. He wants to change that so that what comes out, those good works that proceed from within, from the faith that is in us, is authentic. It's not manufactured. That manufactured portion is Phariseeism. They put it out there. We get to maintain these good works, and, and that's how we merit and earn favor with God. That's how we put this facade out in front of people so that they will think that we're righteous and holy and submitted to the Lord. But Jesus rebuked him, and when he rebuked him, he said, you're like a sepulcher. Everything inside is dead, and it's empty. So we're looking at what God is doing in us. This is part, this is his plan. If you read through Romans chapter 8, the predetermined plan for you and I as believers is to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be sanctified. This is going to happen. If we put a faith in Jesus Christ, if we are born again, this is the plan of God. So I just encourage you, get on board. Now, the tongue is a hard issue. We're gonna, again, we're going to hear that throughout. We, we hear, you guys all hear the rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Remember that? And, and we used to tell kids that when they got picked on and things like that. And, you know, it's only partly true, isn't it? I mean, the, the words that are spoken to us, they do affect us. Now, 
we, we may have some choice in how that, how we allow them to affect us, but, but there, is a, there is an effect upon us. And here's the thing, the words that are spoken, the outflow of people's hearts can sway the world. It's with words that we convey thoughts, that we, that we convey ideas, and it's even with words that we convey the gospel. So here we have this example being discussed about the manifestation of our heart. And it's probably one of the most significant manifestations of our heart that we would have anywhere. Consider uh, that the enemy employs the same mechanism. That he, st- that he uses words to convey thoughts and principles that are antithetical, that are against God and his will and his purpose. It's an interesting thing to consider that, that Hitler, and you go watch Hitler when he does his speeches and things like that, he's extremely animated. He was a very engaging speaker. And there are those today who would even study the methods and some of the techniques that he employed to engage his audience. The charisma that he exuded in those speeches lend credence and and authenticity to the ideas that he was presenting. But they're completely antithetical to what the scripture would say, to what God has given us in his word. So in Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37, I think by the time we get through today, we're going to have seen this particular passage or all of its parallels in every gospel between last week and this week. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37. O generation of vipers, Jesus is speaking here to the Pharisees. That is who he is addressing. And so there's some rebuke here, and he's addressing the hypocrisy. He's, he's talking about their heart and how that comes across. Oh, generation of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings forth good things, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. For by the words, for by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The idea is that we are going to reap what we sow when it comes to our speech. That 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 which comes out, that manifestation of what is within our heart, is going. We're going to reap what we sow. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. In Galatians chapter six, it's a true principle. And here we are, accountable for the words that we speak. Jesus would say that we're even accountable for all of the idle words that we would speak. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter uh, 10, and just keep your finger in Proverbs this morning because we're going to be back and forth there quite a bit. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about speech, about how we talk, about what we talk about. And while we're not going to exhaust the resource that we find in Proverbs, we're going to be there quite a bit. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19. In the multitude of words, there wanteth not sin. But he that refrains his lips is wise. 
It's very easy to sin in regard to our speech. And I think there's a reason for that. And we're going to talk about that as we get into verse 6 this morning. Because no other part of the body, no other part of who we are manifests our natural estate more than our speech. In Proverbs chapter 18, a few pages back, in Proverbs 18, verse 20 through 21. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth. With the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and he that love and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. So don't miss, don't miss what's being said here. We're going to reap what we sow. A man's belly will be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth. There's this illustration. Here's the fruit, the harvest of what is coming out. Whatever he's sown, he's going to reap. And the increase of his lips shall, be, shall he be filled. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. That which either sustains us or that which brings us down is in our tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Remember that when we looked last week, we sort of began, James introduces the whole idea of speaking and he says, don't be many masters. Don't, many of you don't desire to be teachers. And we talked about the calling that God may have put in somebody's life, and we even apply that to ourselves, whether we're called to that or, or, or anything else that God has called us to. But here it is, they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Those who are quick and, and desirous to engage in teaching or speaking, there is a responsibility associated with it. In Proverbs, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 18, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 18, verse 6, and we looked at this verse last week, but uh, so we're just summing this up. Jesus is here addressing those who would teach, and it's part of the responsibility associated with teaching. In verse 6 of Matthew chapter 18, but whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone be hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. The heavy and the weighty responsibility of the words that we speak, reaping what we sow. As we read in Proverbs chapter 10, being justified uh, or, or being condemned, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 12, being justified or condemned by the words that we speak as a manifestation of what is inside. Proverbs 25, if you'll turn there with me for a moment. <clears throat> Proverbs 25, verses 11 through 12. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. An earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. So here we have the idea that a word fitly spoken, that not only are we're going to reap what we sow, there are 
potentially negative consequences for the words that we speak, negative effects upon those around us and upon ourselves for the words that we speak. But not only that, but the good things that may come. A word that is fitly spoken. Here is somebody who is able to give an answer, who is able to stand upon the truth, who with wisdom from above, discerned through the word of God and by the Holy Spirit, is able to speak authentically the truth and God's principles into somebody's life. That word fitly spoken, it says, is as apples of gold in pictures of silver. They're gems, they're ornaments, they're those things that are desired. And an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover, that person who takes the truth and is able to speak it and apply it in somebody's life. Reproof simply means to correct or bring to light. A wise reprover upon an obedient ear. And as we look this morning, just briefly, as we, we look at wisdom in association with the words that we speak and what we hear, this comes full circle. Because there, those who are, who are fools won't receive wisdom and instruction. It doesn't matter if it's sound, doesn't matter if it's truth, they don't want to hear it. And we all know why, because we've read Scripture. All right, let's get into James chapter 3. Turn there this morning. James chapter 3. Let's read verses 3 through 6. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, are driven of fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm. The word helm means rudder. Whithersoever the governor or the person steering the ship wants. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasteth great things. Behold, how, ma- how great a matter a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue and among our members that it defileth the whole body and setteth on course the fire, set on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. So here James jumps in and probably nowhere uh, with the possible exception of maybe Ecclesiastes and some of the other wisdom literature that Solomon wrote in Proverbs, do we find these natural illustrations used more effectively. He gives three examples of the powerful effect of the tongue. Number one, he talks about horses, and we put the bit in the horse's mouth. Now, I'm going to betray my ignorance of all things equine because I don't know a lot about horses. I I, I know the bit is the thing that goes in the mouth. So if I misspeak, just know that James probably knew more and the examples still exist, right? But you put the bit in the horse's mouth, and with the slider, a pressure applied to the reins, you're able to control that animal. It's confirmation, right? And we talked about that last week. That's, God is with you and I. He's put the bit in our mouth so that he may help bring us around to where we need to go, to walk in submission to the sanctification that he is moving in you and I. 
But as an illustration of the tongue, here we can apply pressure to a very small part of a massive animal, relatively speaking, and control it. And then he gives us the example of a rudder. Now, you have these ships, and these ships have progressively gotten larger and larger and larger. You look at some of these giant cargo ships that sail around the world, and they're a quarter mile long. And while the, the rudder of that ship is massive in its own right, relatively speaking, relative to the size of the ship, it's small. And the pilot of the boat is able to turn that and steer that, maneuver that giant vessel wherever he needs it to go using that very small thing. If we can control our tongue, here's the point. If we can control our tongue, we can control the rest of us. Now we're going to have a couple of issues because as we're going to find here, no one can control his tongue. Nobody can contain his tongue. And as we read just a little while ago, we have this third illustration. And don't miss it. This is a third illustration in verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. It's that little thing in your mouth, and with it, we're able to do great things. It, it, it boasts great things. But it continues on. It says, behold, how great a matter a little fire kindles. That word matter is a strange translation in the King James. I don't know what all of the modern translations say, but the word literally means forest. So here you have this little spark, and it starts this massive forest fire which we're familiar with today, right? Because we don't manage things well. And so when there's a fire, just runs through. There's so much fuel. There's all the things that are there necessary for that to spread wildly. So we have the tongue and that little spark. And what happens? You look at the vast destruction and potentially loss of life associated with that forest fire, with that wildfire. Our tongue has great potential, has great potential to do things, to, to move and to be manifestation of what is within, or it has great potential to destroy. Just like we read in Proverbs, the power of life and death are in our tongue. Let's look at verse 6 just a little more closely here. It says, and the tongue is a fire. We have a statement of fact and a world of iniquity, another statement of fact. <clears throat> so is the tongue among our members. Right, so here it is the tongue within us is this uh, fire, that which can consume. Now, fire isn't always bad, is it? If we have a fire, we can use it as a tool, it can be an instrument to cook, to heat, to comfort. To, I, I mean, there's even joy and, and, and solace found within fire. I mean, how many times do you just open the doors of the fireplace and watch it? I mean, it's, it's peaceful. In its proper place, in its proper context, that fire is good. But if you take that fire out of the fireplace and you put it on the floor, out of its context, it's bad. It's going to be destructive. It's going to destroy and cause harm. This is what our tongue is likened to. 
It has great potential, but so often that potential is untapped or even worse, that potential is taken out of its proper use. And we reap destruction and hardship and heartache as a result. It defiles the whole body. And it sets on fire the course of nature. Now, that's an interesting phrase, course of nature. As you go through and you, you read commentaries and things like that, you'll find that there is a pretty broad consensus that that's one of the hardest phrases in Scripture in the New Testament to translate. And so here I'm going to tell you exactly what it means. <laughs> It, it, it's, it's a tough one. Even when you get to the literal sense, if you, if you just literally take what it, it means, wheel of life. That's what it literally means. If you just take the words and you just bring them into English, that's what it means, wheel of life. But what does that mean? Well, let's talk about it for just a moment here because here's a phrase that is used. We want to have some idea what it means. The, the, the course of nature, the word that is translated there, it's Genesis. In the Greek, it's the word Genesis. And it means birth or nativity. That's where things originated. And we find it only used two other places in the New Testament. Two other places. I'll give them to you in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, and Luke chapter 1, verse 14. For a gold star that nobody's keeping track of, and it means nothing. Who knows what's being discussed in those two chapters of Scripture? Say it louder. If you think you know, just throw it out there. Embarrassment is no big deal. <laughs> oh, you can't look it up. That's cheating. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Luke chapter 1, verse 14. Matthew chapter 1, Luke chapter 1. What do we read about? Whose lineage do we find there? Whose birth, whose nativity, whose origins do we read about? Jesus. All the way back to Adam, right? This is where he came from. So that's what we read about here. That's it. So it, we see that that's how it's used in Scripture elsewhere. So let's take the same principle. Let's apply that here. What are the origins? It sets on fire the course of nature. It sets on fire the wheel of life, our nature, where we came from. So th 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 this is what it boils down to. The tongue betrays our base nature. Our tongue, unredeemed, reveals within us the heart that we have, our origins, that we are conceived, as, as David would say, in sin, that we are born sinners, that there is none righteous, no, not one. It, that's what it boils down to. The tongue reveals what is here. Did we mention that this is a heart issue? When we talk about the tongue, it's a heart issue, and that's what it reveals. We are depraved, we are corrupt from birth, and the tongue exposes that. The tongue doesn't cause it, right? We don't become sinners when we sin. We are sinners, therefore we sin. The tongue doesn't cause it, but it reveals it and it exposes it, and that's what it's discussing here. Now, we have this sinful origin, and we work against that base nature, right? Here is God moving in us to transform us, to take that base nature and give us a new one. 
We work against that base nature. We work and we put off and we put on, as we talked about last week. That's part of the sanctification that we are blessed to be a part of. James continues on. Here we are, we're told that this is the nature of our tongue, that this is what it's like, and that if anybody can control his whole body or his tongue, then he can control his whole body. Right? He begins here in verse 7. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and has been tamed of mankind. I mean, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? That, that here is man and we, we tame all kinds of things. We bring them into our subjection and they, they do those things that we want them to do. I mean, I, I grew up and, and a lot of people grew up, right? You had strange pets. You tame these weird animals that nobody else would keep as a pet, but here you have it and you enjoy it and it's, there it is. Every kind of beast, but he continues in verse 8, but, uh, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. The tongue can no man tame. It requires supernatural aid to bring it into subjection. No man can tame it, but God is fully capable of taming it. And not only that, consider that it's a heart problem. And so God is going to deal with that. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Let's turn there for a moment. I have the stirrings in my mind of this verse, and I just am convinced that I'm going to say it incorrectly. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, all things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That nature that we have that is, that is exposed by the tongue, by what comes out of us, is removed from us as believers. When we accept Jesus Christ by faith, we are made new creatures. We have a different nature. We're no longer separate. We are justified. We are declared to be righteous before God. And this chapter in 2 Corinthians goes on to discuss that. That because Jesus was made sin, we could be declared, we could be made his righteousness. But it begins with this new creature that we are made into. Jesus called it being born again. Right? We are born physically. We have this sinful nature inherited from Adam. That's the the defect that we all have, that our tongue and the conduct that is associated with who we are and that base nature, that sinful nature, is exposed. And it's made known. and We see it. Sometimes when we're in the middle of that, sometimes when we are engaged in that sinful process, we don't see it. And the reason we don't see it is because we are fully in the dark. Right, to use the illustration that Jesus uses in John chapter 3, we're in the dark and we don't want our deeds to be exposed and we run around with other people who are doing the same things. And relatively speaking, it isn't that bad and we like to hold ourselves up and say, well, I'm not like that sinner over there. 
But the reality is that when people are confronted with truth, with some standard that is outside of themselves, with some standard that God himself, our creator, has established, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not have other gods before me, so on and so forth. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Even those simple things begin to degrade or shine the light into the darkness that we're trying to hide in. And we're confronted with something, and we see and we experience this, this agony because of where we are and where we've been revealed to be. And furthermore, not where we are revealed to be, but what we are, re- what we are inside. We see the nature that we are born with. We see the corrupting, the depraved nature that we inherit. And we as believers have the responsibility and the privilege and the blessing of being those message bearers who take the word of God and we use our tongues for the glory and the purpose of God and we share the gospel. We shine the light into those dark places. And I'll tell you what, that it only shines a light. It only shines a light when we're willing to call things as they are. We can't condone sin. We can't overlook it. We can't buy into and we can't fall prey to somebody else's relativism. We stand firmly upon the truth and the word of God. And if God calls it sin, then we call it sin. Now, does that mean that we write the person off and, well, I'm done with you and I'm out of here? No. But if we're unwilling to stand on that truth, it's effectively turning off the flashlight. The light doesn't shine into their life at that point. We have to stand firm. We have to remain steadfast. It's a hard problem, and God takes the opportunity, creates the opportunity, rather, for that heart to be replaced, to be a new creature, to be born with a different nature after the Spirit, where there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, where we can be forgiven, where while we may have struggle with sin, it isn't defining us, and it isn't who we are. Supernatural aid is required if we're going to tame our tongue, if we're going to change the heart. And that's the link, right? It's a heart issue. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's look at verse 24. Paul writes, and they, and that ye put on, so there's this description of putting off the former conversation. Just a few verses up in verse 22, we put off the former conversation. Now here, that word conversation, we understand conversation to be speech. But this word conversation means lifestyle, means the way we conduct ourselves. 
It's still the same heart issue. It's just not limited to one example. It's looking at the entire life. Because not only what we say, but how we conduct ourselves will betray what is in within us. So he, he, he begins there, and that's the context. And then he gets to the point, he says, you that are that put on the new man. In other words, those of you who have been born again, you are those new creatures that we just read about in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Those new creatures, you who have put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Created in righteousness and true holiness. After, after God. Okay. In Genesis chapter 1, just hold your place here. Let me just write this verse down, but let me read this to you. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. This shouldn't be news to anyone, but maybe perhaps here in this particular context, it rings true with us. And God said, as he's there speaking everything into existence, and we have all the days of creation, and on the what day was man created? Sixth day. Same day, consequently, as everything that lived on the earth, right? Including dinosaurs, including cattle and all the creeping things. Just throwing that out there. But here it is. God said, let us make man in our image. Now, first of all, pause there. Nothing else in creation is made in the image of God. Only man. There is an inherent value to mankind being made in the image of God. We are his image bearer, and that's what it means. We are his icon, his avatar, his representative, right? When you uh, get your Nintendo and you get to make your little, what's it called, the people, meeples? You get to make your own, the person that looks like you? That's your avatar. Does it look just like you? No but it looks kind of like you. It does those things that you tell it to do. It, it goes out on your behalf and is in this game and does the things and crashes the cars and all the stuff, right? We are God's avatar. We are that representation of him to the world around us. And we may hold, there are, there are those who would hold that truth in unrighteousness, they would suppress it, that we, yeah, we're not created, that God doesn't exist, whatever, the, whatever that deception they've bought into may be, they're at odds with themselves in the testimony of their own existence being made in the image of God. So here we are, we have God making man in his own image after our likeness and let him have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So not only did, man give, did God give man this special position by being made in the image of God, by being part of the representation of himself to the world, he gave him a special position in creation. He gave him dominion. He gave him stewardship of all that he's created. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. So here's God and he makes man in his image. That's the declaration. 
That is the statement of fact and truth that God created uh, mankind in his image. Right? And then we have this process where God says, listen, Adam and Eve, you've been made in my image. Don't eat of the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. When you do, if you do, you'll die. Which is exactly what happened, isn't it? Adam and Eve are tempted. They're led astray, deceived by uh, the serpent. They go in. They consent. They eat the fruit. They sinned. And as we read through in the New, in the New Testament, right, that, that here it is, Romans chapter 5, for example, we're now fashioned, as it were, in the image of Adam. But that natural sinlessness, that doesn't mean that we're not somehow representing God, even in our sinfulness. We're still an image bearer of our creator. But the nature that is within us is different. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, he's talking about this new nature, this, this new man that has been put on. This putting off of that fallen nature and this putting on, being made back into the image of God as it was in the beginning, declared righteous. As if we had never sinned, we are justified before God, just as Adam and Eve before the fall. Now, that may be an imperfect statement. We may not be just as Adam and Eve before the fall. But you get the point here, don't you? You see the distinction that is happening here. One righteous, one unrighteous. We are being made new creatures after the image of God. And that's an important statement because it isn't a righteousness that is our righteousness. It is a righteousness that is his righteousness. True holiness, it says. In Colossians chapter 3, if you want to turn there for a moment. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. <clears throat> and have put on the new man. I'm just going to grab this verse. Okay, there's context, but it's the same. This the putting off. Verse 5, mortify therefore your members. These are things that are cut off. They're dead. They're no longer descriptors or things that we ought to practice. But what should we practice? Have put on the new man, right? That, that's a reference to faith in Jesus Christ, being that new creature, which is renewed in the knowledge, renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Not in the image of our sinful father, Adam. Not, not in the, that fallen image, but in the image of him that is created. In God's perfect righteousness. Declared to be so justified by him. All of this means this. Is in regard to the heart issue of our tongue, that we have a different heart. That it's replaced. We can't tame our tongue ourselves, right? What does that mean? It means that I cannot make myself holy. I cannot make myself righteous. That just by changing the way that I speak, by somehow 
manifesting something different on the outward doesn't change what is inward. We're not fake disciples. We're not those Pharisees who would paint ourselves and, and somehow fashion ourselves so that our righteousness is evident to everybody out there. Look at me. I'm giving all that I have over here. And Jesus, who does he commend this widow who gives her two pennies? And it's the difference of the heart. We can't tame our heart. We can't change our heart. But God can and does. And he does so through knowledge, through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, and in him alone. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poisons. We can't do it. But God does do it. God does do it. He continues on in verse 9 of James chapter 3. Speaking of our tongue in specifically, therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God, or after the image of God. Out of the same mouth proceeds blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not to be so. Because they found sin forth at the same place, sweet water and bitter water. Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? It's a rhetorical question. Of course not. So can no fountain yield both salt, water, and fresh. Here's the thing. He said, he's basically telling us exactly what Jesus told us, that it, what is coming out of you is a representation of where your heart, what your heart is. And if there is a consistent Bitter water coming out, we better examine ourselves. We need to see, am I in the faith? Because what's coming out of me is not representative of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's, a, he's addressing the hypocrisy that we may hold. How do we deal with hypocrisy? We confess it and we repent. That's how you deal with hypocrisy. When we call sin, sin, when we call those things that are good, good, and those things that are bad, bad, that's how we deal with hypocrisy. Even if we've done the opposite, we own it. We take responsibility for it, and we repent. That's how you own hypocrisy. It's not no longer hypocrisy. It's struggle with sin, which is a difference altogether. We had those... Uh, Pharisees, and they were hypocrites. Jesus accused them of such. He declared them to be hypocrites, two-faced. Because the abundance of their heart, what was inside was evidenced on the outside. It was clear. This is your profession. You want to be seen as righteous and holy, but on the inside, you're dead. And out of their... Uh, there are those, obviously, amongst the Pharisees, amongst the Sadducees, amongst, uh, amongst the leaders there in Jerusalem, uh, in the nation of Israel, who were saved. 
they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And there was a change of heart. There was something different on the outside, even if the works themselves manifested the same. I'm still going to honor the Lord in this. Right? Let's consider that here we are. We're, we're, we're a Sunday Christian. We sit in the pew on Sunday mornings. We might even uh, read the Bible with our family. We pray before our meals. We do those things that we're supposed to do. But on the inside, there has been no change. Salt water and bitter water. Inconsistent fruit. But that person gets saved. They're born again through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. They are going to keep doing the same things. They're still going to go to church. They're still going to read the Bible with their family. They're still going to pray before their meals. But the heart is different. The why behind it is different. No longer is it religious going through the motions, trying to somehow appease those around me and look, look spiritual and, and bring about certain things in my family. No, now the difference is that I'm doing this as unto the Lord to please and to honor Him. That He might be glorified, that He might be made known to the world around me. Heart changes. He talks about in, in verses 13 through 18, he talks about wisdom. Now we may come back to this a little bit as we get into chapter 4, because I think there's some, uh, perhaps an unfortunate break in the chapters. But he says in verse 13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of the good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Now, consider the context here. He's talking about, he introduces the idea, uh, the, the topic with teachers. And who is he who is wise and endued with knowledge among you? Who would be a teacher among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Where there should be fruit on the tree. If we're going to put somebody in that position. We talked about that. That's exactly what God would expect. Here are the fruits that he is looking for in those people. And he continues on. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not. And lie not against the truth. Isn't that interesting that here this this strife, this envy, envy means zeal, and strife, the word means selfish ambition. So if you have bitter envying, if you have zeal for your selfish ambition, right, which would be an inconsistent motive to be a teacher, glory not. You need to put that aside and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. There's confusion or or chaos, disorder, restlessness. That's what the word means. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. 
wisdom, right? which is the true, which is the proper application or the proper wielding, if I can use that term, of knowledge, of the truth. So here we have those who are being described. They may be familiar with the truth. They know what to say, but it isn't theirs. Paul would write about these people that they, they know God, but they deny the power thereof. But it, here it is. We know what to say. We know the, 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 the teaching to, to give. We can articulate whatever it may be, but there is no position of relationship with the God they may be preaching about. And so we go back to Proverbs and, and we look at what's happening there. And he says, get wisdom. Get wisdom. Let's, let's look at a few passages in Proverbs. <clears throat> Before we go to Proverbs, let's go to Psalm chapter 14. Unless it's Proverbs 14 and I mistyped it, which is a high probability. Nope, I'm, it is correct. Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The fool has said in his heart, that which is opposite of wisdom, foolishness, says there is no God. Or would say that there is some God that is different than the real God that is described here in the Bible, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Foolishness is hard to be entreated. They don't want to hear it. But as we progress, and I just consider Proverbs, right? Here's Proverbs written by Solomon, maybe not exclusively, but written by Solomon. Verse 1 of Proverbs chapter 1, the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. This is his instruction. This is his teaching to his son. And this is what he says in verse 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right here, here is that person who is unrelated to or doesn't know who God is. Yet they would presume to speak on his behalf, to teach on his behalf. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. Not only is the fear of the Lord the beginning of knowledge, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the right use of that knowledge. Ultimately, what we find is that knowing God, knowing who He is, understanding what he has revealed of himself here in Scripture, yielding and submitting ourselves to his plans, purpose, and will, entering into relationship by faith in Jesus Christ, brings about knowledge and wisdom. Now, 
it's not an instantaneous flip of a switch. We aren't born again and then immediately downloaded into our hearts and minds the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of it's not the way that it works. Remember that we're talking in some respects in the context of sanctification, there's a growing process. But when we look at the world around us, we interpret it in such a way that is different. And as we get into, and this is why I say we're probably going to get into this a little bit next week, as we get into chapter four, because he talks about why is there strife? Why is there war? Why is all this stuff happening? And he looks at it from a different standpoint. Why are there wars in the world today? Well, because here we are, we want the land that you have over there. We want to be in control of that and the resources that are there. But that's not the reason that is given to us in Scripture. Why is there war and strife and all those things? Because of sinfulness, because you want to consume upon your lusts. There's a different understanding of the world around us because of the wisdom that is imparted to us by God himself. We talk about being sober-minded and, and, and looking at, and, and that meaning that we look at things the way Christ looks at them, that we understand them the way that he understands them. That when we look at the world around us, we see current events, when we see strife, when we see hardships, when we see interactions with people, when we're uh, helping somebody just in discussion look at their life and, and the things that are happening there that we probably have a different perspective than that person if they don't know Christ. Because we're looking at it from the standpoint of where their heart is, what, what their heart is, and where it is in relation to their creator. And all they're looking at is the hardship that they're in. Proverbs chapter 2, if you'll go back there with me. Solomon exhorts his son in the first chapter, listen, get wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Get wisdom. Know who God is. Walk in his ways and his precepts. Take those principles to heart. That's what he's telling him. He's not telling him to go and study and engage and and educate yourself. He's telling him to think biblically is how we would phrase it today. Think the thoughts of God after God himself as he's revealed it here in Scripture. That's what he's telling his son. And in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, when wisdom enters into thine heart and knowledge is pleasant unto thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee. Understanding shall keep thee. To deliver thee from the way of the evil man, from the man that speaks, Forward things. What are we going to reap when we begin to sow our life in this way? Discretion is going to preserve us. Understanding is going to keep us. We're going to be delivered from the ways of the evil man. Does that mean we'll never face hardship? No. It's not what it means. but we have a different perspective on these things. We need to get wisdom. Wisdom bridles the tongue. Wisdom is the mechanism that we use to bridle our tongues. 
If it's important enough that God would use this as an illustration here in the book of James as a representation of our heart, it's important enough that we would put these principles into practice. Not only does it bridle our tongue, but it changes our hearts in the way we, can see, we perceive the world around us. When we have wisdom, when we take the wisdom of God and revealed in his word, and we begin to filter everything that we encounter through that matrix, it preserves us. It keeps us from sin. It removes from us the offense that may come otherwise. It puts our tongue and our heart into the proper context so the fire is not on the floor burning everything up. It becomes that word that is spoken at the right time, at the right thing, the wisdom of God, and it becomes that treasure to somebody else. He says in James chapter 1 that, he, that these things ought not to be so, that we would bless and that we would curse with the same mouth. In James chapter 1 verse 2, he says, an a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is an unstable man. This is somebody who is double-minded. Sometimes I curse God, sometimes I bless God. Ultimately, the question for you and I is a discussion of oughtness. Right? This ought not to be. It shouldn't be. Now, oughtness, the, the law of oughtness, as people will call it, it's, it's really the, the moral argument for the existence of God. That here it is, there is a, an inherent right and wrong in the world around us. There's an inherent right and wrong in the world around us. And those who would take a relative perspective on that and say, well, no, that's, we, we can't be that narrow-minded and that hateful. What you're doing is wrong. Defy their own argument. There, there's, even in their mind, while it may be misplaced, there's an inherent right and wrong. Okay. It's the knowledge of good and evil that is within us that is put there by the Creator. That's what oddness is. Now, here's the thing, right? When we think about oddness, we make laws when morality declines. That makes sense? When we stop doing the things that we ought to do, we make laws so that people will be restrained in those things. Okay, think about this. We have currently we have legislation being proposed and all kinds of things in response to these mass shootings that have happened in the United States. I'm not saying it isn't tragedy. But you and I both know that we ought not to buy guns or any kind of mechanism and go and kill people with it. But when oughtness fails, when those things that are inherently right and wrong when we choose not to obey that, and as society and a culture, we slide away from that, and we begin to fall prey to our own moral relativism, now we have to make laws to stop that. 
And obviously there's political agendas and all kinds of things that are involved in that. And that's just a current event. That's just something that's happening today. If we can look at it and see, here's Otnes. 70 years ago, yeah, you don't kill people. Today, you got my order wrong at McDonald's. I'm going to slash your tires or whatever. You ought not to do that. So James uses this example, this same principle. He says those things ought not to be, that we shouldn't curse and bless. And what it does is it makes us think about the things that James is here talking about, right? In the, in the first chapter, count it all joy when you fall into the adverse temptations. When we find ourselves in the midst of all these different circumstances, what ought we to do? Count it joy. Not curse God for the circumstance that he may have allowed or brought about in our life for our sanctification, for our betterment. That would be exactly what's being described here. And it ought not to be so. In Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. says, let your conversation, that which we would speak in the way that we would conduct ourselves, be as it becomes the gospel of Christ. Be as that which is consistent with the gospel of Christ. That whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. couple of things that we derive from this. Number one, the way we should conduct ourselves ought to be consistent with the gospel. But not only that, we would stand together as one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That the church at large, and not just the church, but even our local, our, our little church here and, and our local body of Christ in the Minicaj area, and even outside of that, that the church would stand together in its unwavering commitment to truth, to the word of God, that we would not bless God and curse God, even as the, in a general sense, the body of Christ, but that we would consistently represent him. And here's what's happened, right? How does this moral slide happen? It's because there are not those who are willing to stand fast. You see what the church has done in response to moral relativism? Well, we soften things. We slide along with culture. While we are better than culture at large in some areas, we're probably only two steps behind. And in reality, if culture is going to continue to slide, we should be 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 steps behind and probably ever increasing as we stand fast in the truth and the principles of God. We ought to stand firm. We ought to let our lives be that which is consistent with the word of God. First Peter chapter two, let's turn there. First Peter chapter two, verse 12. 
I'm going to begin in verse 11. He says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. And that word honest means virtuous, means worthy, it means valuable. Let it be honest among the Gentiles that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What has the church done? Here's the world around us, and they're offended by the message of the gospel, so let's change the message. That's not what, they, uh, that's not what this verse says to do. This verse says, listen, Jesus himself said they're going to be offended. Okay, let's just get that off the table. Accept the offense. It's just going to happen. But what do we do? We let our conversation be valuable among the Gentiles. We, we remain firm in the truth, whereas they speak evil against you as evildoers, right? They're going to be accusing us of all kinds of things. And what do we get accused of today? Well, you're homophobic. You hate people. You're not loving. You're all these things. And they're false accusations. We're calling sin, sin. And when we do so, we're attacked for it. Fine. That's fine. On the other side of that calling sin, sin, though, there is something that we have, our good works, those things which confirm what is within us. And that's what James is getting at in James chapter 2. Here it is. Let your good works be consistent with the profession of your faith. We say that we love people. Well, let's not separate ourselves so far that we're not engaging with people. Somebody has a different lifestyle. Somebody has something that, that is sinful within their life. It doesn't mean that they're written off. God didn't write you and I off when we had sin in our life. And thank heavens, he didn't. But while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While people are yet sinners is when we share the gospel with them. Is when we engage with them in a, a, a life so that they may see our good works and glorify our God, God which is in heaven. We can say we have faith, just as we read in James chapter 2. But the challenge for you and I is to show everyone our faith by the things that we're doing. Now, there are those who are zealous and are ruining the witness for us in some respects. Doesn't matter. Our witness your witness and my witness to the family, to the, to, to the neighbors, to, to those that we are love and are concerned about. How are we engaging with them? Are we standing firm upon truth and loving them? Or are we sliding along with them? Are we being swayed by the relativism that they may have espoused because we are Concerned about offense. First Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. As much as it lies with you, be at peace with all men, we read in the book of Romans. 
We're going to have this clear conscience with those that are around us. We're going to maintain that clear conscience. And in other words, we're going to own our hypocrisy in the, in, for the sake of the context of this conversation. We're going to own our hypocrisy. We're going to remove hypocrisy by being honest about the sin that is in our life, by confessing and repenting. And even if we've slid a little bit, you know, we can address that with the people that we've slid for, if I can phrase it that way. And that even itself becomes a witness to the loss that are around us. Right? We've taken the flashlight again and we've turned it back on and we've directed it into their lives. Not in a way, I mean, not right in their eyes, and not a, <laughs> but in a way that moves them where they're at in a way that conveys the love of Christ to them, in a way that conveys that we are care and concerned about them. And that's why we would have this conversation. That's why I would repent. That's why I would confess before you that, yeah, that's something I shouldn't have done. That's something I shouldn't have agreed with. In this world, we're going to have trouble. We're going to be persecuted. We're going to have hardship. That's just an inevitability of being in the world. We are pilgrims. We're those, we're not from here. This isn't where we abide. How should we live in, in respect to what we've taken this morning in the wisdom that, that God has imparted to us? We're going to live consistently. We're not going to curse one day and honor God the next day. And if we do, we're going to own that. We're going to confess and repent so that God isn't slandered. So that people may see the good works around us and that they may glorify God who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in your name. We praise you for your faithfulness and the consistency of the love wherewith you have loved us. While we were yet sinners, Lord, Christ would die for us. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your grace, help us that even in the midst of hardships and troubles and tribulations and all kinds of things that we're going to encounter, Lord, that you would, by your grace, help us to stand firm. That we are conformed and molded into the image of your Son, that people would see more and more clearly your love, your concern, your provision of salvation through the death of your son, Jesus Christ. And God, by your grace, may we be those who stand firm and uncompromising in the world around us. I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would convict us. If there's anything in our hearts, anything that we have compromised in, anything that we need to address and confess, Lord, that you by your spirit would bring that to our minds. And God, I pray for your grace that we might repent of those things. I thank you, Lord, that you don't reject us even when we do fail, but Lord, you have never leaving, never forsaking us. We praise you this morning. And Lord, as we have opportunity to sing to you, to give the offering of our lips in praise and worship. God, we pray that you would receive it as our heart's intention of, of worship. In Jesus' name, amen.